If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, May the 9th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow. My guest today here in Hoover's Washington, D.C. office, not a very long walk from the White House, is Byron York. Byron York is the chief political correspondent for the Washington Examiner, a Fox News contributor, and host of the Byron York Show, a podcast that runs on the Ricochet Network, which is where this podcast also appears. Maybe you're hearing us via Ricochet. Byron's also the author of a book called The Vast Left-Wing Conspiracy, the untold story of how Democratic operatives, eccentric billionaires, liberal activists, and assorted celebrities tried to bring down a president, and while they'll try even harder the next time. And this book was written after the 2004 election, so we're going to talk about if 2019 is the next time or not. And let's start with that, Byron. You wrote that book 15 years ago, and the premise was that the 2004 election between George Bush and John Kerry was in fact, a, in fact a proxy fight in part, and the left made a concerted effort to go after Bush in sort of a conspiratorial way to bring him down. Well, what we saw, the reason I wrote the book, uh, was that we saw, I think, the beginnings of the basic progressive infrastructure that exists today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there uh, grew a new progressive movement. I like to call themselves progressives as opposed to liberals. And uh, they created some institutions, some of which lasted, some of which didn't. Uh, some like the Center for American Progress, for example, very influential group today. It's John Podesta's group. John Podesta's yeah. group, founded, I believe, in 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, Media Matters, uh, another very effective David Brock's uh, group. Yeah. Uh, some things didn't work. Air America Radio, they were going to launch a big, have a big progressive radio network. Right. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, other things um, basically didn't work but served as the basis for future efforts. There was a thing called America Coming Together. Mm-hmm. All of this was designed to try to defeat George W. Bush. Right. And um, what you know, the way I got into it is that I was writing for National Review at the time. And um, this was basically in the run-up to the Iraq War. And um, I really didn't cover the run-up to the Iraq War much. But there grew a number of things happening on the left, uh, the anti-war movement and other things I was just talking about that I found really interesting. So I started covering the left, basically. And um, so, for example, when I believe the 2004 Republican convention was in New York, I think. And uh, so basically I covered all the Democratic leftist progressive events at the con- you know, around the convention. Right. Um, that was just kind of what I did. And, uh, you know, it turned out that uh, some of the stuff that they were founding – uh, it wasn't big enough to defeat George W. Bush. Uh, people really didn't want to change uh, presidents during in a wartime. Uh, and by that, I mean kind of the larger war on terror, not just Iraq. And the John Kerry wasn't a very, um, you know, captivating uh, Democratic challenger. Uh, so it didn't work. But uh, a lot of people uh, really learned uh, on the progressive side, really learned a lot. There was this group, as I said, called America Coming Together, which was a huge voter organizing group. And George Soros and his uh, 
partner, his sort of partner in giving, the late uh, Peter Lewis, who was a, who I believe uh, founded, was an insurance magnate, and um, just gave millions and millions of dollars to this. I mean, this was the the amount of money that Soros spent in the '04 election was historic, um, and you know it didn't work. And I and, and out of it came another group, uh, which what's called the Democracy Alliance, in which um, it's been my experience that billionaires don't like to throw money away. Right. You know, you think they have, you know, they have thousands of millions of dollars, but they do not like to throw it away. So they came up with Democracy Alliance to, to, to create more effective ways of moving money into, into left-wing groups who would be more effective. And, and all of this, I think, was, uh, has been very, very useful for the Democratic Party um, in the Obama years and, and beyond. Mm-hmm. All right, so the book's title and why they'll try even harder the next time. Mm-hmm. So, is 2019 the next time? Well, it's... Um, or was 2016 the next time? Well, you, ha- you have to remember that um, there's a, a lot of anti-Trump craziness now, but there was a lot of anti-Bush craziness in 2006 and 2007. Obviously, he was not going to run again in 2008. But, uh, you know, in the 2006 election, that's when Democrats took control of the House and the Senate. Um, they were talking about impeaching George W. Bush, uh, like John Conyers, who, if they won control of the House, was going to be chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Right. And he wanted to impeach right. uh, uh, Bush over Iraq. And, and it, it became such a big thing that Nancy Pelosi, who stood to become speaker if they won, I believe went on 60 Minutes and said impeachment is off the table. She, yeah, she had a meeting with the caucus, and then she went on 60 Minutes, and she cut it off. And this was, I think, in the spring of 2006. This is in 2006. Six, right. So she cut it off early, way before the election. Right. So yeah. this is not a, a, just a Trump phenomenon. Right. It's something new in the world. Um, and there's you know, been a lot of uh, – you know, there was a lot of craziness ba- back then. So um, certainly now, um, I think we've seen more anger and agitation on the left maybe than we've seen, if not in my lifetime, at least since the run-up to the Iraq War. There was, uh, but you have to remember a lot, of, a lot of people on the left were divided right. about the Iraq War. There were some, like the New Republic, basically, uh, which was still alive at that time, uh, basically supported it, mm-hmm. and you certainly had some Democrats who voted to uh, to authorize it, which is certainly Hillary Clinton did. Right. Joe Biden did too, I assume. Yes, yes. he must have. And um, so, you know, th- there, there have been these periods before. So, yes, things are really, really agitated now, but they have been pretty agitated in the past. Would you say more agitated? And if it's more agitated, Byron, is it more agitated because... Is it, is it just the nature of Trump? Is it the nature of the way he won? Is it the fact that Trump seems to delight in them being agitated? Yeah, well, it could be all of those things. Yeah. Part of it certainly is the nature of Trump. And right. uh, First of all, I think with the, with um, with a number of people who oppose Trump, I think we should just take them as their word, at their mm-hmm. word. They are, they are uh, genuinely offended by the president's style or they believe the president is uh, absolutely lawless and that he is uh, – just rolling over norms right and left uh, that had previously been sacrosanct. I mean, you know, they some, believe some of that stuff. Right. Um, but the in, the intensity now is really uh, enormous, and I and p- part of part of the intensity I think is due to 
social media. We didn't have, um, it wasn't as big a presence in, in even in the Obama years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obama did make great use of social media, but it was only so far along in 2012, uh, much farther along now. And um, and also Trump does does delight in, in doing this. Um, when we were at Stanford not long ago, mm-hmm. um, uh, I talked a bit about uh, how there's always two levels going on with Trump. Right. Um, he he likes to create a daily firestorm, and he uses Twitter very effectively to set the media agenda and set a daily firestorm. And at the same time, he's also doing stuff toward toward actually um, achieving a particular goal. Mm-hmm. So. Um, he'll create a firestorm by saying he talked with Putin and he didn't say anything about the 2016 election. Um, and then at the same time, his administration is creating these policies that are, in my view, certainly tougher on Russia than Obama um, and just actually objectively tough on Russia. So there's always this kind of dual-level thing going right. on with him. And he, he does see the value in... Uh, and getting his opposition all spun up, and boy, does he do it. He does. Have you interviewed him? Have you talked to him? Yeah. Um, not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a couple of times during the campaign. I've spoken to him maybe three, four, five times during his presidency. If you could get to him right now or tomorrow, what would you ask him? Oh, wow. That's, um, that's uh, you know, I haven't, <laughs> haven't thought about that. Um, well, I mean, you can either go with the what's going on at the moment question, you can go for the big picture message, you can ask him what, what it's like to be a president, what he sees as world of Washington, yada, yada, yada. But <laughs> I think I would probably uh, ask him about um, how he's going to use and handle the whole Russia thing all the way through the 2020 election, because Democrats are obviously going to use it, yeah. and he must have a plan about what he's going to do as well. Right. So this is a man who famously said that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and not lose voters. Uh, I would point out you're from Alabama. I am from Alabama. You rolled tie. You went to Alabama. You went to the U. I went to Alabama. Could Nick Saban stand in the middle of University Avenue in Tuscaloosa and shoot somebody and not lose fans? Probably so. I would. I would say so. I mean, it's, it's interesting because when I was growing up, and and certainly for all of Nick Saban's life, uh, Bear Bryant was the. Bear, the yeah was the legend in Alabama, and still is. Mm-hmm. And I believe Brian, uh, Saban is still one short of Bryant in terms of national championships. Right. And I was very chagrined <laughs> that he didn't but, but win it, the last one. His name's not on the stadium. Right. He, did not, uh, he did not win the last one. Right. So, uh, and they're really hard to win. Um, they are, by the way, I have a Clemson family, Byron. I, I, have, really? I have a niece who went to Clemson. The other niece married a Clemson boy. Well, the, I have a little grandnephew who's honest to God, his first word is paw. Mm, it's scary. Mm, mm. Uh, is there anything more ironic than the Clemson nation and the Alabama nation being asked to gather in San Francisco? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's absolutely crazy. But, but yes, I am from Alabama, and uh, I am for the University of Alabama, and... Uh, I will confess, I mean, the, you know, we didn't have a pro team, still don't have a pro team. Right. There's nothing. So it's not like there's any pro football team right. or pro sport that I really care about. Right. Um, but the, the, the rivalry, of course, was with Auburn. And uh, I've tried to, you know, grow personally, but I probably am still one of those people that it's not enough that Alabama must win, but Auburn must lose. Um, 
as I said, I'm trying to grow personally out of this, but, uh, yes, but that's where I am. You're not poisoning trees or anything no. like that. Right? Oh, God, no. God, no. So, I'm, I'm not trying to take us too far off track. There's actually a point here in that there is a cult of Nick Saban, as there is a cult of Dabo Sweeney mm-hmm. at Clemson, and there's a cult of Donald Trump. But we see the cult under attack in Washington on a daily basis. And as you watch this going on and you watch now the House going after his tax records and I guess what Bill Clinton would have called the politics of personal destruction, what – what do you see the end game here? And I was just asking our previous interview, Barbara Comstock, about this, a former congresswoman. Is the point is the point of all this, Byron, just to bog him down like Gulliver and just have him deal with a lot of legal crap for the next year? Is the point of this to actually find something criminal and come up with an article of impeachment? Or is the point of it just for Nancy Pelosi to let these people let off steam? I think the point is it's one of these multi-possibility things. Right. I mean – if you pursue him, maybe you'll find something big and you can impeach him. On the other hand, if you don't, maybe you can subject him to a death to a, by a thousand cuts mm-hmm. and he'll be bleeding so much by November 20 that you defeat him. I mean, so it's, it's not like, like there's just one thing. Right. Um, I do – I mean, I did cover the Clinton impeachment uh, pretty closely. And, I mean, that was intense. That was really intense in uh, Washington. And people – you know, some people who were it, normally, you know, if they leaned left or if they leaned right, but they were really pretty centrist. They tried to keep, kind of keep their centrist cred. Well, they became tribal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Hutus and Tutsis in in uh, Washington in 1998 and 99. And, um, you know, we could definitely be heading for worse than it is right now. I mean, I, I, I think that it was more intense, certainly during at the, you know, when Clinton was actually impeached. It was more intense than it is at this moment, and uh, so I think when people say it's really bad right now, it could get a good deal worse. Um, so what's their goal? I mean, obviously the goal is to defeat him. The goal of some people is to destroy him beyond defeating him. So like if they managed to remove him from office, then they would want to prosecute him and, and jail him. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the goal of others is just to defeat him. I think you know, with Democrats, of course they want to defeat him. I, why, why wouldn't they want to defeat him? Right. Uh, I think what's kind of interesting is those Republicans who are uh, who went by the name of uh, Never Trumpers, and some of whom still do, and who would like to see him gone. I think uh, it has always been the always since 2015. The fascinating question about the Republican Party is is, is going to be what is the post-Trump Republican Party? look like, because I think there were opponents of him uh, inside the Republican Party who during the primary season uh, thought that he would just, he would either lose or he would just get bored or discouraged and just get out of the race. I mean, there, there was a lot of people who thought, thought he would just drop out. Right. Um, or he would implode in some way and and, um, and lose big. Um, and they they genuinely thought that was going to happen. And then they thought when that happened, the party could go back to the status quo ante, you know, and right. just be – we could all be like we were before. And I think at some point they realized that that wasn't going to happen. And maybe it was it, it was well before the convention. Maybe it was even before he wrapped up the nomination on May 3rd in Indiana. Um, but they realized that, you know, things have really changed. And, and in my view, I've always been of the view, I've agreed with those people who said Trump did not cause these divisions. He mm-hmm. exposed these divisions. Right. Then when he got the nomination, I think they felt secure that he was going to lose. Right. And then it, hopefully they could uh, 
go back and kind of be the way they were before. Maybe there would be some purges. Maybe some people who got out a little over their skis in favor of Trump would have to be, um, you know, kind of read out of the party. <laughs> um, but it could kind of go back to being mm-hmm. what it was. And then, of course, he won. And uh, so there you got four years right there of, um, of, of him changing the party, of him being right. the leader of the party. And of the voters who always, I mean, the good thing about this is the voters drove this whole thing. I mean, I was out there covering Trump from 2015 on. And, I mean, the reason he was taken so seriously, of course, is that these huge crowds were coming out and supporting him. And then they actually supported him with their votes come primary and caucus time. So um, so it's my view that things have changed pretty significantly and they're not going to go back. But I don't know exactly what the kind of post-Trump synthesis is going to be. I think I, when I thought Trump was going to be defeated mm-hmm. in, in 2016, you know, I, I was kind of looking at what the post-Trump synthesis would look like, who might lead it. Right. Um, but, you know, obviously four years of a presidency and real policies and a lot of judges who are mm-hmm. on the bench because of President Trump and all this stuff, I mean, that changes the party. If Trump were to drop the microphone, just say, I'm not going to run in 2020, just surprise us all. And I thought at some point, actually, he might do it because it'd be mm-hmm. the Trumpian anti thing to do. But then I thought that, no, the other thing that motivates him is proving people wrong, mm-hmm. which I thought was at the genesis of him. You know, it's funny that I looked at the 2016 campaign through a very California lens, Byron, and that I saw Trump as a slow-speed car chase in Southern California, mm-hmm. where the cops do one of two things with the car in Los Angeles. They either run it off the road or they let it run out of gas. Or if they think it's a real threat, they'll put out rumble strips and blow out the tires. And I thought Trump was like a car ready to go over a rumble strip. He'd either, either get more money of NBC and drop out, or somebody else would talk about immigration. He'd declare victory and retreat. Mm-hmm. Or the good people of Iowa and New Hampshire would show him to the curb. Or he'd get booted at the convention. <laughs> he just went through every rumble strip along the <laughs> yes, way. You, you had a number of incorrect scenarios. Exactly, there. just each one. <laughs> the, right. tires, the tires never popped. He went through. But the interesting question is, if Trump were to just shock us all and just not run for re-election all mm-hmm. of a sudden, what happens to the Republican Party? Because it seems to me, Byron, it would be just kind of like 2015 again with about a dozen people all claiming to be the heart and soul mm-hmm. of the Republican Party. Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and mm-hmm. uh, Tom Cotton would probably jump in this time and a couple of Republican governors would be named later. And maybe there's a populist out there, maybe a talk radio ghost about that who try to play the role of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is the kind of magical thinking that we saw during the campaign sometime. yes. yes. On election day, uh, 2016, I was in New York uh, for the Trump um, Trump event, uh, election night event, mm-hmm. and so I needed to write a story for the Washington Examiner website that would last through the day. Right. Even though basically all you do on election day is you're just talking to people, see right. what do you hear, what do you hear. Anyway, um, so I wrote a story that would last, and the story I wrote was called "The Candidate Who Wouldn't Quit." And I went through all of the times, beginning before he even declared, uh, in which people had said that Trump would quit right. the race. And it got to be almost poignant, you know, right. as he was going along, where they would just hope that maybe he'll just quit and, and we'll be rid of this menace. Um, and, of course, he never did. And, uh, by the way... <laughs> Let's see, that was, well, okay, that was November uh, 8th of 2016. Probably February or March of the next year, 2017, he's been president a couple of months. And, um, 
and uh, things are going badly. I th- maybe this is when Michael Flynn resigns. There's just a firestorm around the. Of course, there always was from the right. very beginning. Maybe it was the Muslim ban, whatever it was. I get um, from Trump uh, a note, and it's a printout of my story, The Candidate Who Never Quit. And it just said, Byron, so true. <laughs> and this was like months, months later that it just popped into his mind. And the way, the way Trump does these things is he'll either cut an article out or, or, or have somebody cut an article out or print an article out. Mm-hmm. And then he will um, write his comments in a Sharpie on it. And then they'll make it a PDF and then send it to you. It's slightly, you know, cumbersome uh, process. But anyway... So back to my my story, which was that uh, there's just always been this hope that he might quit. Right. So I don't think there's any hope at all, that he, any any chance at all that he's going to not run for uh, re-election. If he did, the party would be tossed into chaos. This seems to be the root of the Democratic problem right now, that he just won't go away, but also they just can't go to the fact that he won the election. Well, and why would – I mean, look, why would a president – obviously he's got some uh, – some electoral problems in 2020, right. but if you just look at Gallup, I, I never do look at Gallup, but the one, I, no, I shouldn't say that, I, I never rely on Gallup, but mm-hmm. but it has been asking the same questions for years and years and decades and decades, and right. it's kind of valuable for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have something called the Presidential Approval Center, something yes. like that, that mm-hmm. you can go look at, um, you can look at, at Obama's. You can look at presidents week in and week in and month in and month yes. out, all through their presidency. All through their, yeah. so if you want to see where George H.W. Bush was at every week of his presidency, you can see. So, you know, the last time I looked, which is the last week or two, uh, Trump was at, um, Trump was actually hit 46, which is big for him. Right. And Obama at the exact time was at 44. Now, Obama got to 51 by election day. Right. That's important. Um, but, I mean, why would Somebody just quit when he's 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 in the game. He's got a plan, right. and you have to remember that. Uh, I used to, uh, you know, the website two seventy to win, mm-hmm. where you can you, you know you can play col- with the electoral color college, in the states all you want. color in the states, and uh, you know uh, a lot of people did that just compulsively mm-hmm. uh, during the twenty sixteen campaign. But the, I mean, the the way for Trump to win was extremely simple, very mm-hmm. difficult, but extremely simple, which was win the Romney twenty twelve states. That got him to two. Let's see, two. It was two o six. Romney was plus, two twelve, wasn't he? Romney was two o six, and then you, if he went, and then I think he got forty seven out of uh, of Florida and Ohio. That took him to well, two fifty three. You had to do three things. You had to right. win the Romney states, and then win Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And uh, that's and, all you had to Iowa, do. Yeah, he picked up Iowa, yeah. but um, right. No, I. But had, you didn't have to. I had Trump uh, capping out at about two sixty one. And then yeah. I was giving him those states plus one in May, but I never had, like a lot of people, I never had him getting those three. Well, see, I uh, Ohio was, uh, Florida right. looked okay yeah. for Trump. Ohio looked very good for Trump. Right. But I just didn't think he was going to win Pennsylvania. Yeah. So I thought he was going to do everything short and not get Pennsylvania. And, and, I, right. and I do believe there were some Republicans um, who supported Trump, who basically thought that the bottom line result would be that he did better than Romney. You know, so they could look at all those Romney supporters and say, "Well, he did better than your guy, didn't he?" Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, it was very, very simple. So, win all those states plus Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Now, 
he, he did that, and then he added uh, Michigan and Wisconsin on right. top. Of so it. he got to 306. 306. Right. And then he lost two in the Electoral College uh, exactly. meeting. Um, so I mean, he, he didn't have to have right. Michigan and Wisconsin. So I'm sure the states will come out differently this time, but uh, of course he's in the race. And it, the, the idea that he would just quit, uh, barring some, you know, you know, health crisis or some other human thing that we don't know about is just not tenable in my view. Right. Um, we thought, at least people like me thought, that he would cap out of the two sixties in part because we just didn't think he had the infrastructure in those mm -hmm. states to win. But there also was personal bias here, and I'll, I'll confess to being personally biased. You looked at Donald Trump and you thought, the American people just are not going to elect Donald Trump president. Mm -hmm. And then, lo and behold, it happened. So... What do you attribute it to, Barr? I mean, do, especially in terms of the press just never accepting that Trump could actually win. In other words, just this biased view that he just he just cannot win this thing. It just cannot happen. First of all, Trump attracted a lot of people uh, into supporting him who had just not been involved in mm -hmm. politics before. I remember being in a, a rally of his in Las Vegas, I think it was, and a woman, uh, there was a couple standing there, and this was just in the crowd, and uh, the woman looks at me, and they, and they had come down from Alaska, which is a long drive to Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And she pointed at her husband and said, 64 years old, never voted in an election. Going to vote for Trump, mm -hmm. which I think he probably did. Um, so there was that kind of person. And then I think that uh, Trump kind of brutally... Uh, told the Republican Party establishment that it was not really on the same page with all of its voters on some issues. Right. Trade was one of them. Um, entitlements, certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you talk about uh, whatever whatever solution you have for Social Security or Medicare, and you point you pull out the charts uh, that show that the Social Security is going to go broke on this day, and, and Medicare is going to go broke on this day. And that doesn't go anywhere. Right. Doesn't go anywhere. And Trump said, to hell with that. Um, one of the most shocking things Mitt Romney ever did to me was pick Paul Ryan as his running mate. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> he says, this guy wants to cut Medicare. He's right. going to just make him the vice president. Anyway, um, so Trump – so anyway, there was, there was trade. Uh, there was entitlements. Uh, there were foreign entanglements. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Trump in the South Carolina primary was just brutal on the bushes. Right. I mean, he's, he's brutal to Jeb, as he always was. Uh, and But, you know, George had come. George W. had come to South Carolina to try to – it was like Jeb's last stand, and mm -hmm. the whole family came. Right. Um, and just Trump just brutalized them. And, and I, rem I remember being at the W. rally for, for Jeb, and I asked everybody – and this was, I think, in North Charleston – um, very conservative crowd, maybe not a super Trumpy crowd, but Trumpy enough mm -hmm. that he would win. But um, so I asked him about the you know the war in Iraq because Trump had called it just a big fat disaster, and uh, he had even gone further and said that W lied, um, and most people didn't they didn't want to believe that, but they they thought that it really actually was a disaster, but that W was doing his best. Um, so, I mean, they, they weren't mean, they, you know, they weren't filled with hostility toward the Bushes or anything, but boy, right. were they ready to move on. And I think Trump sensed that in, in a way that some other candidates did. So I think this is a great question for the Democrats moving forward as you look at this 
ridiculously crowded. What are they up to now? 21, 22? 21, I think. Yeah. So I'm thinking pretty much do an 11 on 11 full pad scrimmage if they want to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you look at that field, Byron, and the question is this what does the average Democratic voter feel about their own party? Because I think what people overlook is what you just mentioned about 2016. Yes, Trump was Trump, but Trump was a performer. And yes, he tapped into immigration in a way that other candidates didn't. And yes, when he stood out on the stage, he was not an office holder like the rest of them. But he also tapped into a lot of resentment against the Republican establishment, be it what you just mentioned with the Bushes. Um, A really pretty feckless campaign by Mitt Romney, a pretty feckless campaign by John McCain. Yeah. You know, conservatives just mad that, you know, God, we have control of Congress. We don't do anything really yeah. with that power in terms of spending all that. Trump really kind of channeled all that. And I wonder, Byron, and we won't know the answer until a few months from now, but if Democratic primary voters feel the same about their party, and if they do, where do they channel that energy? Do they channel it into Bernie? Do they channel it? Do they punish Joe Biden? Well, I think that, um, I mean, if they were going to feel that way about their party, they would have felt about it that way when, when Hillary Clinton was running because yeah. – uh, you did have the Obama years, but other right. than the Obama years, you had the Clintons basically right. dominating that party since 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're free from that now. You know, I mean, there were there were a number of people who would have run for president earlier yeah. had the Clintons kind of not strangled everything in the crib. Now you're, you're taking her out uh, of the running for 2020. Huh? You're taking her out of the running for 2020. <laughs> yeah, I am taking. Tell me, she didn't watch the Derby and doesn't have any um, second thoughts about this. <laughs> So if they were going to feel that way, they you know they felt that way then. I yeah. think the you know from what I can tell, the um, the Bernie Hillary fight still goes on. Right. I mean Hillary's not there. Bernie is, but no, Biden so kind of Biden kind of comes apart. That conflict yeah. is is still there. Um, and I don't know you know and and certainly, it's a much more progressive party uh, than it was. But I, I don't know how we're going to see that work out. I mean, I, I will say this is, you know, I, I love polls. I use them all the time. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you who's going to win months from now, but they do tell you what's happening right at this moment. And I was one of these people who thought that uh, Joe Biden would begin sinking in the polls the moment that he announced that his first day in the race would be his best day in the race. And exactly the opposite has yeah. happened. Joe Biden has actually done quite well in the polls. I don't think he's done all that well in the on the trail, but he's done well in the polls uh, since he came out. So some of this stuff is unpredictable at the moment. No, I'm there with you. I thought Joe Biden would just be Jeb without the exclamation point mm-hmm. um, and have the same problem. Still course, might it, happen, but well, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Biden has yet to take a lot of positions. We don't know where he is on impeachment. We don't know where he is on Medicare for all. We don't yeah. know where he well, is let on me give slavery you, reparations. Let me give you my shtick, which I always do. I'm, the fact is, is that Bernie and Biden are just too old to be president. And by too old, I don't mean out of touch. Uh, I mean, too old. Uh, Bernie would be 79 years old on Inauguration Day 2020. Um, That is uh, older than Trump will be leaving office after eight years. Right, and Biden is two Um, years younger than Bernie. uh, And that's well older than Reagan was after leaving office um, after eight years. And uh, Biden is just, I think, about a year, really. Uh, He'll be 68, uh, excuse me, 78. Right on Inauguration Day 2020. Uh, you're basically asking a president to be ready to serve eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and presidents, being presidents into the mid-80s is totally uncharted territory. Right. And uh, I think anybody who's seen aging relatives has seen the, the, uh, the spectrum of uh, variety of 
ableness that people can have in their mid-80s, some extremely sharp, very energetic, all of that. Others, not so much. And for the job like the presidency, it's just too old. This was a problem for Hillary and not Trump talking about Hillary's health, but Hillary turned 69 during the election. And if you go back to John Kennedy, Byron, and look at winning Democratic presidential candidates, the, the ones who didn't inherit the office like LBJ, the oldest one is Jimmy Carter, who I think was 52 years old when he wins in 1976. Oh, so you think age was a, was a problem for Democrats? Because obviously I, Trump is older than Hillary, and well, he won. But Republicans Republicans are like the Soviet leaders up on the top of the Kremlin with the Homburgs on their hats. We, <laughs> we like old white men. Um, but the Democrats like young candidates. They like you know Kennedy and Obama and Clinton. These are all men in their 40s with young families. They're well, they really, want the feeling of being going forward. They want to talk about the future. Exactly. And Hillary could not talk about the future. And they also saw time branding Hillary is what exactly is she? Is she a hip grandma who goes on Ellen? Is she like Angela Merkel? She's a mutu of her country? They could never quite figure out how to sell her as a product. And you would have three candidates, not just Bernie or Biden, but also Elizabeth Warren, who would right. be in their 70s on Inauguration Day, uh, older than Trump was when he began. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's really, they do have a, a, in my view, they have a general generational reckoning on the way because yeah. they have a lot of very appealing candidates who are in that sweet spot for presidential age in their yes. 50s, maybe early 60s, some in their late 40s. They have, you know, they have a couple of who are extremely young, but um, they got plenty of candidates who are right. right right in the age, so we'll see. They do. Now, one of them is Kamala Harris, who my, yeah. my senator from California, and uh, her campaign announced today that they're doing a reboot. And the reboot is that she is basically going to be a wildly anti-Trump candidate. And this kind of tells me, Byron, that they're going to give up the Obama trope about here as another post-racial, wonderful Democrat for you to feel better about things. And no, they see the sweet spot as the person who could go the most tough against Trump. You know, I, um, well, I just told you how well I predicted Biden's trajectory after announcing. Right. I don't know um, how well this is going to uh, uh, work. Look, the reason that Hillary Clinton lost. Now, you can talk about, (coughs) excuse me, how unattractive she was as a candidate, unappealing, um, somebody with a long, long history, somebody well past their sell-by date as a candidate, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff. But really, the, the most immediate reason she lost was that she was not able to recreate the Obama coalition in the same numbers that Obama could. Right. And if you remember, uh, early on in 2008, early when Obama wins, there is talk about this new coalition of minorities, women and young people, uh, who turn out in extraordinary numbers and elect Obama. And there was a lot of talk about, given demographic change was on the way and in the, the country becoming more uh, Hispanic, that um, Democrats were going to win from now on. And I do think that's part of the reason they were so angry when they lost in 2016 is that they thought, wait a minute, you you told us this was not going to happen. But um, her problem was that there was an Obama coalition and she couldn't get it out in the same numbers that he did. So as a matter of fact, you can take three places. You can take Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. you can take Detroit, Mm -hmm. and you can take Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. And if she turns out the Obama coalition in the same numbers that he did, she wins. Um, but Byron, that's got to be what the next president, the Democratic candidate, does. But Byron, those people are all on Facebook getting misled by Russian ads. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that has got to be, 
I mean, I still think, I mean, nobody's told me about any different road to the White House for the for a Democratic candidate. And, you know, they all talk about Trump uh, or Republicans depending on an, on an aging and dwindling right. uh, white majority and all of this stuff. And, uh, fine, I'm not denying any of that. But the path to the White House for a Democrat is to recreate that Obama coalition. Now, do you do that by going blowtorch on Donald Trump all the time? Or do you try to ignite some of that uh, passion that Obama did? Now, right. none of these candidates appears to be Obama, to have his you know, peculiar mix of, of talent uh, and appeal and ability uh, to, um, to, um, to sort of fill people with hope. Yes. I mean, I remember sitting in the... Uh, the uh, the convention was in Denver, I think, mm-hmm. and right, they did the big Greek. They have it, yeah. Right. They have it at the stadium, uh-huh. and they have it outside. And they have these big Greek or Roman columns, mm-hmm. and so all the press they stuck in the actual. Since it's a stadium, they got a big press box area. So I left that, and so I just was wandering around. So I go like way up into the seats, and I'm sitting there, and it's a bunch of large number of basically middle-aged, middle-class white people, mm-hmm. and they're chanting, Obama, Obama, <laughs> Obama. You know, it's, it was just weird, you know. But, but clearly he, you know, he, right. he, he, he uh, touched something inside them. And uh, so I'm not saying that the next Democratic candidate is going to be able to do that, but they got to try, and I right. think that's really the way they're going to win if they do. That's why it's interesting that she wants to reboot in this fashion because she has spent a lot of time in South Carolina, playing on the fact that she and Cory Booker are the only two, you know. Well, that's—I mean—that's a big thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, look, uh, uh, black voters are a huge part of right. the Democratic coalition. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I mean, they're just a huge part, and there's no way you're going to become the Democratic nominee right. without the support of black uh, voters, and there's none of them in Iowa and none of them in New Hampshire. Right. So the game really starts, and I, I remember covering Bernie in 16, and um, Bernie's got a problem. I mean, Vermont is maybe the white, literally the whitest state in the country. Very, very few black voters in Vermont, so obviously he wants to... to uh, um, sort of burnish his his standing among black voters. So he goes on this tour of the South. Goes to South Carolina and Georgia. So I see him uh, on the day he spends in Atlanta. He has this uh, this rally at the Fox Theater, which is a beautiful old theater from the 20s mm-hmm. on Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta. And I go there. I'm thinking, well, who's going to come, you know, for this? And it's the same Bernie crowd for everywhere. It's, right. it's a, a tons and tons of white, young kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bernie clearly doesn't know sort of how to do this. So he gives his standard millionaires and millionaires and billionaires speech. And then at one point he goes, and I want to say a few words about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, and then he talks for you know maybe five minutes, and, uh-huh. and then he goes back to what he was. Right. But there were so few uh, people of color there that I thought, hell, I can talk to every single one of them. Here. There's only like I can only find like 25 people. I could interview them all, and I would have like 100 percent of the minority attendance of this rally, and I did. And uh, what was interesting were was they were they were just you know 
just like everybody else. They were young, many of them were in college. And they all described a generational, a good-hearted generational conflict with their parents. The parents supported Hillary Clinton. And they all viewed this as vestigial support of Bill Clinton, which they couldn't talk their parents out of. And they liked Bernie uh, for the same reason that everybody else liked Bernie. He was going to get tough on the banks and the millionaires and the billionaires and all that stuff. So they were very on board with Bernie's uh, platform. But it was like, you know, they, they viewed their parents as people who just couldn't sort of get away from this sort of loyalty to the Clintons. So for the parents, the Clinton would have been one of their first votes, right? Oh, uh, you mean the math, for the, the young parents, people? Yeah, because Clinton. Oh, the, for the parents, for yeah, the parents, yeah. Because yeah, Clinton right. would have run 26 years, so right. it would be like the FDR-Kennedy thing. Right. By the way, first votes was a sentimental romantic. Right, and this was, this was not an, uh, an Obama thing. He wasn't on, on the ballot and wasn't right. going to be on right. the ballot. So if you if you look at Bernie, you look at Hillary, you know what do you what do you see? And uh, for a number of their parents, they saw the the Clinton brand essentially, mm-hmm. and uh, they remembered that they supported Bill Clinton. They still like Bill Clinton, so they supported the wife. And uh, I mean, this was th- so there was this big there was this big generational thing going on uh, among black voters, and so you're going to see that in. South Carolina and, and in Georgia, obviously in the states where there are a lot of black voters. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, you've seen Kamala Harris in particular pay a huge amount of attention right. to um, South Carolina. I have to say, just observing her, I mean, I just don't see much warmth at all there um, in the way that, you know, just the, the appeals to people. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we'll see We'll see how she does. But, um, but I mean, this is not a not a joke. I mean, you can do well in Iowa, you can do well in New Hampshire, but you've got you to do well in South Carolina. And then, of course, Nevada is going to be around the same time, so you'll have a good deal of, of Hispanic voters uh, as well. That's good stuff. So a couple more questions, I'll let you get out of here. Uh, you mentioned uh, before you came on the air that you are going to be hitting the road campaign trail in 2020. Hope so. You'll be doing the debates? Uh, I would think so. I mean, I'm not going to be moderating any debates. <laughs> we don't. Uh, uh, I'm a Fox News contributor, and that, that's un- un- unfortunately, uh, Democrats, at least at the moment, are not going to do any debates with Fox News, which I think is a shame because Fox News does the best debates. Uh, but that's their decision. It's just a silly thing because it's you know, it's not like you're going to be grilled by Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity and two other strong Fox personalities. You're going to have the news side of it grill you, and it's going to be be fair questions. Yeah, and I think actually we haven't seen debates, but we have seen uh, town halls. Yeah. And we had Bernie, uh, and we've had uh, Klobuchar, and we had another one too. Um, and they've all done well. Yeah. You know, they've and and they get. Uh, in my view, they get more balanced questioning than they might get uh, in another forum. Right. But um, very respectful, and they come out of it stronger than they went in. And town halls you can help engineer, especially bringing audiences in. And with debates, if you have a half-decent communication staff to a good staff, you can pretty much do a motorboard bar and anticipate 18 of the 20 questions you're going to get thrown your way. So it's not... It's not really something to be fair, so I just don't know. I think there's just a lot of value in playing Daniel and the Lions down yeah. here and going on and doing it. Absolutely, and, and as far as the rest of the campaign, I mean, this is the best time to be covering the campaign because right. um, <clears throat> because everything's small. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, because candidates are appearing in somebody's house right. or a coffee shop or a really small venue, and there's no big security. Mm-hmm. You just walk in, and you right. can talk to people and uh, watch the candidate, perhaps talk to the candidate, get close to people, 
Um, and that is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, when you get to the conventions, you have two candidates. They're the only candidates in the race. It's a national race. They have s uh, secret security, right. secret security, uh, secret service, uh, excuse me, secret service protection. And it becomes hard, really hard. Just logistically, it's kind right. of, you know, Trump rallies were just kind of exhausting. It would just take hours to get in sometimes. And yes. then, you know, it was like the whole day for this one thing. So uh, now, you you know, you can just jump in the car and follow them and go to like four events. And then it's, it's really a wonderful time of the campaign. Final question. Since you mentioned Trump, let's ask a Trump question. Presidents historically are pretty quiet in terms of getting involved in their opponent's elections. You don't see Democrats get involved in Republican primaries and vice versa Republicans and Democrats, but this is a different president. It's not above, yep. not above tweeting about candidates and not above going to rallies and singling out candidates. Mm -hmm. Put yourself in Donald Trump's shoes for a minute. How does Donald Trump want to spend his summer? Does he want to do – he obviously wants to do some presidential things, but does he want to do rallies? Does he want to tweet and does he, does he want to pick a favorite? Well, I, look, uh, to, to the degree he's picking a favorite, I mean, he wants to, to pick whoever he can needle the best and right. undermine the best. Right, but is there some method in the madness, Byron? Is he going to try to bang after Joe Biden, thinking that maybe oh. I want Joe Biden or do I want to go after Bernie? In other words, can, oh, sure, Is he sure. going to try to use Twitter to try to drive Democrats? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he'll be as strategic as he can. Yeah. And I think he – look, he, he likes to do these rallies. Right. And uh, he did them and he was enormously successful in the campaign. Um, from the very beginning, the rallies were way, way bigger than anybody else's. Right. And um, then we became president in the transition and president presidency early few months. Didn't do many. Hmm. Uh, and there were people saying, go out and, go out and do these again. They, you know, uh, this, it's a way for you to communicate, take your message uh, straight to people and all of that. And he did. And he still yeah. does. And he finds it, uh, I think... He really likes it a lot. Your, your friend Dana Perino, who I think is one of the truly mm -hmm. bright people on TV, by the way, this is always her advice when Trump is having a bad week. Get out of Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he, he does that, and he gets a very enthusiastic, enthusiastic yeah. crowd. And, you know, he um, – you know, the way he communicates is still mysterious um, to some people, sometimes including me. Uh, because I remember in his first rallies I would go to – this was in 2015 um, – he talked for about an hour and ten minutes, all over the place. Yeah. He'd talk about his properties, his golf game, winning club championships, his TV show. Then he'd throw in immigration. Then he'd talk about how much money he has and his airplane. And then he would talk about you know, uh, the deficit or China. But, but you know what's and smart about that? It makes it really hard for live TV to pull away. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you figure live you know, TV didn't. Live TV covers a Rose Garden event, Byron, and the president announces a grant or something like that. Then the right. president goes into singling out everybody on the stage, and live TV gets the heck out at that go point. Go away. But at a Trump rally, you don't want to go away because he, he might do something. He was totally unpredictable. <laughs> right. And so he was talking about all of this stuff. And so then you think at the end, you ask yourself, well, what was that speech about? And, um, you know, certainly in the beginning of it all, I was viewing this much more conventionally than I came to later. Mm -hmm. But I would ask people, you know, coming out of the rally, uh, voters, well, what, what did he say? And they would give me like this three-bullet-point summary of what he said. They said he's, he's, he's going to bring our jobs back, he's going to build a wall, and he's going to kick the hell out of ISIS. Yeah. I thought, wow, you know, he talked for an hour and ten minutes doing all this, going all over the place, and they came away with a pretty concise view of what he's going to do. 
So he was communicating with them more effectively than I understood. And I had to, I had to kind of get that, that, that clearly what I'm hearing or the way I'm judging it is, is not the way they are. And so I, you know, began, I remember writing a piece basically saying that maybe in June or July of 20, Mm -hmm. I can't remember if it was 15 or 16, but um, he just didn't, and and, and this was part of the problem of of a lot of media misunderstanding of them, Mm -hmm. of him, that uh, they just didn't understand he was kind of communicating in a a much different way, but that was effective with people Mm -hmm. who view the world perhaps differently than the, you know, White House correspondent of the Washington Post does. Okay, final question, I promise. It's almost four years to the day. Next month will be four years since he came down the escalator and announced, mm. does he still have the fastball? Does he still have the fastball? Yeah. Um, he, he has the presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, does <clears> – I'll have to look at him on the, on the stump. Uh, he may – as far as I can tell, he still has an enormous amount of stamina um, and the ability to – sort of set the agenda yeah. and the ability to set everybody's hair on fire on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but the connectivity, if he went out and did 70 minutes as he did four years ago, mm-hmm. would that audience still get the same three points, you think? Well, it's a different thing now because they see they, they see him as president right. and they see what he's done and what he hasn't done. <clears throat> and if somebody says, well, you know, I, there's no wall. He hasn't built a wall and that's right. what he said he was going to do. Well, that, you know, it doesn't matter if he can – be, be good on the stump. That's mm-hmm. that's a substantive problem for him. So um, so I think that I think that he's got enormous resources uh, because he's an incumbent president, and it's really hard to knock off an incumbent president yeah. for a variety of reasons. He's you know clearly has enormous vulnerabilities right. for tons of reasons, but um, but he's not in a terrible position. Well, eighteen months from now, we'll have a vote. We will. Safe travels and have fun on the campaign trail. Thank you so much. Barwin York, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends all about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the work of Hoover's fellows straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Byron York is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at, surprisingly enough, at Byron York. That's B-Y-R-O-N-Y-O-R-K, at Byron York. The Washington Examiner, where you'll find his good writing. The website uh, is WashingtonExaminer.com. It's on Twitter at DC Examiner. Uh, and The Byron York Show on Ricochet. On Ricochet. Is coming up. Uh, let's see. Today is May the 9th. When's the next episode of that coming up? We just did one. Okay. Uh, with the lawyer uh, who represented a key figure inside the crazy Republican Party platform flap in the Trump Russia investigation, and then he ended up also being the lawyer for Maria Butina. And these are two stories that were enormously. I don't know. They they had a, just an enormous hype, and they turned out basically both to be nothing. Uh, really fascinating tale. Sounds good. I look forward to it, and you can find that on Ricochet, right? Correct. Very good. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. 
I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.